designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Welcome back. So I am so excited to be getting to the end of conference season. It's been a busy couple weeks. The last week, I was in New York at the Getting to Zero conference hosted by the New Buildings Institute. And there, I co-presented with Lori Ferris on how historic preservation can help achieve equitable building decarbonization efforts and goals. And it was great to be there, but it was also my first time speaking in public since COVID started. So had to shake out some of the nerves, but it was good to connect and learn more about various climate action policies and strategies that are happening around the country. And then this Monday was the end of the Association for Preservation Technology International, also known as APTI. It was the end of their annual conference and the beginning of the National Trust for Historic Preservations Conference. And both organizations had their conferences uh, virtually, but had selected DC as the conference city. And so as part of the overlap day, we held a symposium to highlight the community engagement project and historic Anacostia that's been going on for the past year. And that effort was being led by myself, as well as Tiffany Simple of Simple Design Studios, Amania Price of the DC Office of Planning, and Rondison Cabbage from the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And so a year's worth of work was culminated in about six hours of video presentations and resources. It was a great way to show the work that we've been doing over the past year, but it was also a lot of work. So I'm very glad that it is done and behind us. Uh, Year two of that project will start in December and we'll be helping the Children of Mine Youth Center 
come up with RFPs, as well as stabilize the structure and pursue various grant sources. This week is also the beginning of the COP26 conference. Yes, that is the conference that President Biden was caught sleeping at, but he's there and the U.S. is back on the map. So that's important. And so anyways, I am excited to learn more about what comes out of that conference and just excited to be getting to the end of conference season and the beginning of the holidays. And so I thought that this would be a great time to share a conversation that I had with Lori Ferris a couple months ago. And in this conversation, we talk about the importance of existing and historic buildings being part of the climate action conversation. And Lori is an amazing thought leader in this space. And so I'm super excited to be able to have this conversation with her. Lori and I are two of the four co-chairs of the Zero Net Carbon Collaboration. And so during the conversation, we'll talk a lot about that organization, as well as a number of overlaps between different organizations that are trying to do similar things. So as you can imagine, uh, this conversation between friends and colleagues fell a little bit into um, acronym soup. So apologies for that. Um, I do include a number of links to the organizations, articles, and resources that we talk about. They are listed in the show notes. So if you haven't already, be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you can get access to the show notes. You can also visit the podcast on Instagram and get links there. Additionally, email me at tangibleremnants at gmail.com if you're interested in learning more about how you could potentially be featured on the podcast or interested in sponsoring an episode. And just to prime you for this conversation a little bit, let me read some of Lori's bio so you have a little bit more context for who she is. So Lori Ferris is a leader in sustainable stewardship for the built environment. As Goody Clancy's Director of Sustainability and Climate Action, she leads research and project initiatives and advocates within the broader profession for policies and practices that advance climate action goals. Lori plays a leadership role on projects at educational institutions that are renewing their heritage campuses while also advancing their climate action goals. She serves as project manager and forensic specialist on a number of Goody Clancy projects, and her sustainability leadership includes incorporating life cycle assessment as an integrated step of the design process. Within the broader design community, Lori's leadership is shaping our understanding of building reuse as a key measure towards meeting climate change mitigation goals. At the national level, she serves as a founding member and co-chair of the Zero Net Carbon Collaboration for Existing and Historic Buildings, also known as the ZNCC, which is a collaborative committed to achieving a zero net carbon built environment through responsible reuse of existing buildings. And most recently, Lori was asked by the City of Boston to serve on its Carbon Mitigation Policy Technical Advisory Group. Lori is a fantastic thought leader in this space, and so it's a fun conversation. And so this week's building highlight is the Maggie Walker Building in Richmond, Virginia. So for those of you like me who did not know who Maggie Walker was, she was the first African-American woman in the United States to found a bank. And she founded this bank in 1903, and it was called St. Luke Penny Savings Bank. She was the bank's first president, and she also agreed to serve as the chairman of the board of directors when the bank merged with two other Richmond banks to become the Consolidated Bank and Trust Company. And that bank, until 2009, thrived as the oldest continually African-American operated bank in the United States. And so I love that this 
building is still there. The building that's still there in Jackson Ward was her home for the later part of her life. And I'm so grateful that that building was there because when I was touring Jackson Ward with a client and walked by the building, I was able to learn more about her legacy. And so check out the Instagram to see photos of it because the building really is this beautiful, regal brick building. But you can also check the show notes to learn more about the building and Maggie Walker's legacy. And so with that, I'm looking forward to getting to the end of conference season, and I'm super excited to share this episode with you. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Lori Ferris. Lori, thanks for jumping on the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you because I know we've had a chance to work together through ZNCC and a couple other or a couple other organizations, and there's just not that many female architects who specialize in preservation and sustainability. So I'm super excited to have you on. So happy to be here, Akita. <laughs> so I would love to talk a little bit about what got you into architecture and preservation and start there. And then also where did sustainability start falling into the mix? I think I first decided to be an architect in the third grade when we had a school project um, to design a house. So we were given a hypothetical family with a you know program, so to speak, what they needed, how much space they needed, you know what what types of spaces, and we got to design a floor plan for them on little graph paper. And I just I loved that idea of turning people's personalities and family needs into a physical space, and you know combined combined with drawing and math and all of that stuff. So that was sort of my first taste of architecture. And then I think at the same time I've always been really interested in our relationship to the places around us. And I think that's sort of both getting to preservation and sustainability. I grew up in Southern Louisiana where there's just an unspoken relationship. I think that everyone has to the environment, both to the the history and the past and the culture and identity that are associated with that and the, the constantly changing climate and not just climate change in the way we think of it now, but that settled, people who settled along the Mississippi River dealt with that from or the earliest settlement that the, the river sort of shifted and you responded to that. You were responding to the, the natural environment, not controlling it, but sort of living with it, with that, that tension. And I think from that point that that just really sunk into me as something so important, this relationship we, ha- we have with our, our past and our present and our future as it relates to our physical environment, both built and natural. So those, those ideas all came together for me. It brought me to architecture and specifically architecture, but about about the way it relates to our culture and our place and sense of identity. That's super amazing. I didn't realize that you were from Southern Louisiana. What, what took you to Boston? Uh, school. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I came okay. here for school Fair. and never left. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, and so then I really love the idea of how preservation and architecture and really the built environment connect us the past, the present, and the future. And it's the idea for me is about architecture and designing things, creating things that we would eventually want preservationists in the future to preserve, to reuse, to keep breathing new life into. When you started getting more into the field, where did you start to see sustainability coming more into play? Because I know there are a lot of architects and even contractors who don't understand why or how preservation and sustainability are related. Yeah, I think for me that I've always had trouble separating them out. And that's part of why my career path has been a little bit winding. Um, when I studied architecture, uh, architect, my architectural education at least was very focused on new construction and um, very conceptual design ideas. 
I always tried to make it about existing buildings and how they performed. <laughs> so I would turn, you know, for example, my reports would be about the McKim building of the Boston Public Library and how the historic building construction typology lent itself to passive performance and, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I think to me, they've always been integrated. It's always been about how our buildings are objects that do all of those things that provide spaces that, you know, that create senses of space, but that also respond to the environment and, and have performance and material attributes. And that actually is how I got into structural engineering out of school because I was so interested in the tactile and like tectonic nature of buildings and historic buildings. And so as a structural engineer, particularly as a very young professional, you have, I, I felt I had a better opportunity to really get hands-on with historic buildings as a structural engineer and really get to know their systems and their materials. Um, and their, and, you know, also thinking about sustainability as well, like the, the footprint on the environment that our buildings have over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me a while. I think as a structural engineer, it's a little bit difficult to access the sustainability conversations. Yeah. Um, that was actually frustrating. And one of the reasons I left structural engineering and why I came back to architecture, because I love being in this role where we get to kind of shape the whole theory around the way we reuse buildings and uh, our whole approach to it. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, cause I, from, I guess, and this is a little bit of my biases, but, I would agree that like the sustainability within structural engineering, I feel it would be hard because it's, you're not dealing with as much stuff, even though it's still the steel, the Mm -hmm. masonry and all that, but it's like the base building materials don't necessarily, how do I say this? I don't always think about that when I'm thinking about sustainability. I'm thinking more of like the reusing, but I guess I'm talking in circles because it is the embodied carbon situation and reusing existing buildings is the important piece of it. Hmm. One of the things that I know you've been really great at doing is really talking about embodied carbon and existing buildings and sustainability. Uh, and you're involved in a number of different organizations uh, and some of them have international or crossing international boundaries. How are you seeing some of this work unfolding overseas and some of the work that you're doing with different groups? I think it's it's really interesting to observe this topic, the topic of sustainability and heritage and specifically embodied carbon across the globe because different communities are treating it very differently. And um, particularly, I think the regulatory landscape is so varied. I was just on a call this morning talking about how to adapt the to build or not to build calculator for uh, Flanders and, and potentially kind of migrating out from there within the EU. And just the, I think we all understand that we need to do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all the people I'm working with are coming coming at it from the same perspective, particularly around building reuse, that we need to figure out how to leverage our heritage towards climate action. And we need better tools and data to help quantify that case. Um, but we all have different, we all have sort of different constraints and different opportunities. You know, for example, in the EU, they have more regulation about requiring EPDs, environmental product declarations, and tracking embodied carbon. And some agencies, you know, have embodied carbon limits and requirements, um, which we don't have here. So that's a little bit different. They also have different heritage approaches. <laughs> you know, in the US, we are, our heritage is so new compared to some of their, you know, other places in the in the world. So they're kind of dealing with different technical issues around reuse and um, particularly for vernacular type. I remember when I was studying abroad, um, doing some preservation in England, I was talking to a conservationist over there, which is, you know, equivalent of a preservationist over here. And he made some comment, like, we have castles older than your country. Like you treat your buildings too precious. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, the perspective. Yeah. <laughs> the U.S. is a very young country with, uh, in our preservation, what we can do with our buildings and all that is, yeah, 
very, we do treat it very precious. And the idea that preservation and sustainability can go together is still something that seems radical to most people, which seems, I think, super intuitive to both of us. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And in, in your, I, I still hear that this is a struggle everywhere to make this case, but it seems like there is a lot more funding and just general support at a governmental level and at a, and a private you know, NGO level, particularly in the EU around supporting exploring existing buildings and conservation and heritage as sustainability. Um, they're doing a lot of really interesting, interesting work. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and material study, you know, for example, the Fraunhofer is working on looking at uh, how to use renders uh, on historic buildings and modifying them to have more insulative properties. So really it's just a whole different mindset, I think, around approaching a more traditional heritage, mm-hmm. you know, kind of vocabulary with a higher, higher tech sustainability, um, you know, thinking. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that you mentioned was the to build or not to build calculator. Um, I know what that is, but if, for the listeners, would you explain a little bit more about what that is? Yes. Uh, the to build or not to build calculator is a, a fairly simple tool to assess the total carbon emissions of of existing building reuse. So it looks at three scenarios, an existing building, if you don't do anything to it, an existing building, if you retrofit it um, and hopefully improve its energy performance. And then a third option where you replace it with new construction. And it just very quickly gives you a snapshot of the, most likely the carbon savings, particularly in the critical near term that you can achieve through building retrofit. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about the calculator is that it really does help to kind of give a big picture number to what the impacts would be because it's like for so long the and within the preservation field the idea has been well the greenest building is the one that's already built that's often credited to carl elefante but it's kind of like being able to quantify that and show what that looks like Uh, so it really felt like it was building a little bit on the report that the national trust did almost a decade ago now i guess about you know if you were to demolish a historic building put back a similar building of about the same mass and size you'd still have a number of years or decades before you broke even because of the avoided impacts from demolition so it's like reminding people that there is a carbon impact to demolishing the historic building or existing building and what does that look like so i'm super excited that the calculators alive <laughs> it's being developed yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and i should um, absolutely give a shout out to the original founder of the calculator larry strain of siegel and strain architects in the bay area and Archit- and aaron mcdade of architecture 2030 who has been the mastermind behind the, the excel tool yes um, absolutely yeah. and it's been a joy to watch it evolve in all of the work that's been going into it. you guys have been doing amazing work on that and then one of the things that i guess we should also talk about since we're both very heavily involved with it, um, is the Zero Net Carbon Collaboration, which is uh, the ZNCC. It's an initiative um, that I got to join and um, Lori was one of the original co-chairs of. Um, So I guess give a little bit of a shout out to ZNCC as well, if you don't mind. Sure, yeah. The ZNCC, um, obviously it's a great group with Nikita and I. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and our other co-chairs, Mark Grant and Scott Henson. And it was founded really to to fill this void that exists at the intersection between preservation and sustainability and more mainstream design and architecture in this race to decarbonization. Um, so that was our, our reason for, for being really was to help champion existing and historic buildings as an asset towards zero. Yeah. Um, 
and one of the things that I get super excited about with the group is that it's it's very international. So uh, Mark Brandt, he's also one of the co-chairs. He's out of Canada. We also have members and representatives from ICOMOS, uh, Peter Cox, who's in Ireland. So it's like we have some non-U.S. thought thought leaders that are involved in the conversation, helping us think bigger, uh, which I super appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think that diversity, that geographic diversity and um, diversity across specialty is really, you know, what makes it an important group. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of really, it's really trying to break down those silos and get cross communication going. Yeah. And one of the things that has opened up or one of the opportunities that's opened up is some of the overlap that we're doing with the Climate Heritage Network and Carbon Leadership Forum and even the Passive House Accelerator and trying to blend the groups together or make introductions. Uh, And so I know that uh, you're very heavily involved in the COP26 Working Group 3 planning through um, Climate Heritage Network. Uh, So share a little bit about that initiative. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the Climate Heritage Network was a group that was established pretty shortly after the ZNCC. And it is a global, truly a global group focused on mobilizing arts, culture, and heritage towards climate action. And the working group that uh, that I'm co-coordinating uh, with uh, with Mark Brandt on behalf of ZNCC is this working group that's focused on quantifying the benefits of heritage and decarbonization um, through better metrics for avoided operational and embodied carbon. And yeah, it's it's been really exciting. I think this goes back to that looking looking globally about what people what different people are doing and what everyone can bring to the table. For example, you know, in in the EU, they've recently published the Hyber Atlas website, which is an amazing repository of decarbonization case studies of heritage buildings. So, you know, being able to combine that with our own case studies in the US and the work on the calculator and uh, you know, getting a sense for heritage regulations across all these different municipalities and and larger governments. Um, it's really exciting. And yeah. working towards COP26, our goal is to just bring that message to bring that message to COP26. First, you know, I think this year in COP26 is is going to be a big year for the built environment in general. That the built environment is really showing up. Representatives of the you know built the construction industry are showing up to say that buildings really matter here mm-hmm. and have a huge role to play. And then heritage in particular, um, really, you know, kind of for the first time, bringing the heritage sector to the table for this conversation. Yeah, and that's something that I find super interesting and exciting because um, for so long, heritage and existing buildings haven't been part of the climate conversation. And it's been focused more so, it seems, on industry or transportation or you know, greenhouse gas emissions, but ignoring the fact that buildings really make up like a third of that, <laughs> like the operations of our buildings and all that needs to be in the conversation. Otherwise, we're not going to we're not going to do, we're not going to achieve any of the goals that everyone is trying to achieve. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and when you think about those emissions that, you know, more than a third of global emissions come from buildings, as you just said, and most of that, two thirds of that is from operation of existing buildings. So right. when we think about new construction as the way to get to net zero, we're missing that entire chunk of global emissions. Um, right. And I think the heritage sector has an opportunity, not just to you know, say we know how to do this, but to really lead and say we know how to reuse buildings in a really responsible and effective way. And we can use those principles and those techniques, not just for a small wedge of heritage, but really for for many existing buildings. Right, exactly. Because I think going back to the idea of 
the built environment and how we interact with the past and the present and how we're, what, what are we doing in the, in the present to kind of tell the story of the past for our future and how are we actually making that come to life? Um, it's something that you're right. Heritage professionals are skilled at, but getting us out of our silos um, and <laughs> recognizing that it's okay for the preservation folks to talk to the sustainability folks and for the sustainability folks to talk to the heritage. It's like, it's, it's right. interesting that I think uh, so, professionally a lot of different disciplines are trying to go in the same direction but they just have blinders on so i love that kind of the work that you're doing and the work that um, znc is doing we're trying to break down some of the silos to get us there a little bit faster <laughs> right absolutely and one thing just the last thing on the, the climate heritage network that i i have been learning so much from are all of the people who are not focused on buildings because really we're just the working group focused on buildings is one small piece of it there's so much um, so much of our cultural heritage that's not in the form of the built environment. And, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about, for example, traditional agricultural practices and how those are so critical to cultural identity and so vulnerable to climate change and thinking about adaptation through those lenses. So I really love kind of taking it beyond buildings and thinking about our built heritage as just one piece in this whole constellation of of our culture. Oh, I love that. Cause I definitely would not think of agricultural practices as part of that, but you're right. They absolutely do play such a huge role in that. Oh, fascinating. So yeah, I will put links to all of these amazing things that we're talking about in the show notes so people can get to them. Uh, because yeah, we got we to gotta share the word. Okay. <laughs> and then um, COP26, uh, do you, have they made a decision yet if they're having it in person? It looks like so far there will be an in-portion component. Awesome. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Are you traveling there or no? Not currently. Okay. And it's in Glasgow, right? Exactly. It's in Glasgow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah. digital for now. <laughs> right. But it's going to be, it's definitely going to be at least hybrid with a, a fairly heavy online component, particularly I think some of the um, pavilion pieces, the less mm-hmm. official pieces um, where the Climate Heritage Network or the ZNCC might be able to share what we're doing will be virtual. So I think there's there are a lot of great opportunities for participation. Okay, awesome. Well, good. Well, yeah, pulling stacks. I know it's definitely conference season. Um, and so in addition to COP26, there's also the APT conference coming up. Um, and it's also going to be fully virtual uh, based out of DC. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I'm not going to green build at the moment I wasn't planning on it, but there's probably going to also be like the NOMA conference and a bunch of other ones. Um, so anyways, it should be a good time. So in addition to doing work on the international scale, um, are there different things that you're seeing being done locally that Boston's doing or Massachusetts that you think are um, helping to blend more of the preservation sustainability worlds? That's a good question. I think it's tough. I think every, yeah. at every scale, we're struggling to break down those silos. Mm-hmm. And um, locally, I really see this manifesting right now in the conversations around salvage and reuse for climate action. Hmm. And it seems like the, the conversations are starting to come together, but the sustainability world is really talking about deconstruction and reuse um, purely from a carbon standpoint and an economic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, the preservation community is, has always taught, you know, ha, it's, that's just part of preservation is salvage and reusing existing materials and historic materials because they're more authentic, they're more durable, right. uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that it's, it's, I think they're starting to come together, but I think that's just one of those issues where everyone's coming at it from their different perspectives and it's hard to integrate the conversation. Um, and I think that's, 
it's like, who's the convener? How do we, how do we actually <laughs> do, do that? How do we break down the silos um, in reality? And I, I think we're starting to see that through um, the city of Boston actually is there's a lot of really wonderful leadership happening where the, um, the Boston landmarks commission and the zero waste group and um, the other, you know, areas within the environment department are starting to kind of knit together their strategy and their outreach with these external components. So I think there's, I think we're moving in the right direction. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think um, in Maryland, it's somewhat similar. Like there's been more of a movement between kind of the uh, preservation field and open space. So it's kind of getting those two groups to talk to each other um, because it's super interesting. There is often a lot of funding that can go to creating a new park, but then not necessarily funding that's going to go towards restoring historic buildings. So it's like, how do we make those two, those two initiatives not, be seen as uh, dichotomies um, or, you know, extremes. It's like, no, they can work together. It's trying to get to the same, (laughs) trying to get to the same goal. Um, Okay. So, all right. So interesting. Um, And so um, one of the other things I'd love to chat about is um, just the, what are some of the observations that you've seen as you've been operating in some of these spaces? Uh, Let me see this. So trying to think of like, the impact of just being a woman in this in these spaces. So structural engineering, architecture, sustainability, trying to bring a different viewpoint to a lot of the conversations, which may be a little bit more male focused or even kind of initiated that way, if that makes sense. Because um, I know for me, a lot of times it's trying to help people see it's both and as opposed to know it's only this way. <laughs> so just curious if you had any, any observations and trying to have more of those conversations. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, I... I actually am seeing this strange shift where particularly in our area, the sustainability field, and for some reason, very specifically embodied carbon is mm-hmm. sort of female dominated at this point. <laughs> so that's an interesting shift to be yeah. in meetings where there's one man and the rest of us are women. And it's um, actually, it's been a challenge. Like, but why aren't there young men coming in? Particularly, I think for younger ages, why aren't young men coming to, to sustainability? And um, I do kind of wonder if there's this natural, um, like forward thinking need to take care of our species that somehow young women are more drawn to. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't really know how to, I can't really put my finger on it. Yeah. I think actually maybe this has to do with the silos also that some of these spaces are still very male and some of them are not like when we try and, you know, for example, have these conversations with many of our contractors and builders, those are very male spaces still. And yeah, there's certainly, you're already kind of the foreign element by being there. And then when you try and bring in these topics that they're not used to discussing, like sustainability or, or preservation, mm-hmm. you can get pushed to the side as, oh, you're, you're already different. And now you're bringing in these new fangled concepts, yeah. um, not to stereotype all contractors, but, um, but fair. Like, but, yeah. That <laughs> yeah, that's definitely been one of the experiences that I had. I was working on, I was called in to be like a preservation specialist on a gristmill from the 17, early 1700s. Uh, the contractors had never done any sustainability or sorry, any preservation before. And so I was, you know, starting from the base point of trying to explain to them what makes it historic, why it's important, whatever. Um, and then one of the contractors finally was like, well, who was president when this was built? And I was like, we had a king. <laughs> the U.S. wasn't wasn't a thing yet. And then he was like, "Oh, so it's just kind of like some." It, it was an interesting like teaching moment to be like, "This is why this matters," because yeah. you know this is still here. <laughs> so it, yeah, so it's, I, I agree with the having to be. You're, 
you're already brought in as um, kind of a different viewpoint. And then it's like, you know, a visible difference. <laughs> and then it's right. also having to then to somewhat educate them into something that they may not know or haven't done before. And I know a lot of times, um, a lot of the contractors I've worked with, they are a couple decades older than me. So then there's also kind of that mm-hmm. age of, well, I've always done it this way. And oh yeah. So anyways, it's, it's always interesting to me to hear other stories of how did you navigate that? Because it's, it's there and it's, you know, it's, it's a thing. <laughs> it is there. Yeah, it does. It feels like you frequently both, yeah, because of age and gender, you're starting a little bit behind in uh, terms of having to prove yourself. Right. You have to come in and you and proving your relevance. I think Mm -hmm. it's not about being competent or being good at your job or good at communicating that it's about making what you're trying to say relevant to what other people's work is (laughs) and and to, to make sure for them to take you seriously, even for them to say like, Oh, that does matter to me because it's connected in this way. Um, You're not just off there doing your own thing. It doesn't impact me at all. Right, exactly. And it's not just some sort of thing that's other and not integral to the work that we're doing here. I think that's been the biggest, like, oh, if I put it in a way that they care about, then it gets listened to. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As opposed to being like, there's this checklist that says we have to do this. Like, Yeah. yeah, that doesn't work. Um, all right. Well, I know you also have a little one. So talk a little bit about what it's been like or how motherhood and um, kind of raising a young one has maybe impacted your view on the profession or the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, having a child was, I think, a bigger change to my outlook than I thought it would be. And at the same time, not as impactful. Um, I think before having a that I was kind of worried that I would only care about my kid and I wouldn't want, you know, I would drop all of this mm-hmm. amazing extracurricular um, engagement <laughs> that I'm involved in. Um, and that hasn't been the case at all. If anything, it's, it's kind of reversed having a little person who you care so deeply about providing a future for just fuels my need to act. Like I, I've become, if anything, more impatient around advocacy and external education and really just trying to push us forward. Um, and I'm I'm really grateful to have had female role models for balancing family and work because it's definitely not easy. And um, I've I've been lucky to have uh, female leaders in my professional life who have raised families while running firms, while being principals, um, and leading work and doing all this you know all this amazing work outside. Um, so I think that was always. That was really valuable to me. And I know not everyone is um, lucky enough to have that. I can shout, I'll do a shout out to Jean now, Nikita. (laughs) Current, um, my mentor now, uh, you know, did did this, had a career, raised two children. And uh, it's really nice to have someone to to share that experience with and to know that it's not perfect. You're not going to be a perfect employee and you're not going to be a perfect parent. But but doing each of them makes the other part richer and I think makes you better at the other part of your life. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. awesome. Yeah, Jean Caroon is definitely uh, one of the people that I fangirl over and like her book is amazing and I'm a little bit jealous that you get to work with her, but also super excited for you. <laughs> well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon and just about everywhere music is sold.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got yeah. anything? I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.